The title of the series this weekend, what I'm going to be covering is Present Truth or Cunningly Devised Fables. Present Truth or Cunningly Devised Fables. Are we really holding and carrying the truth of God or did somebody sell us a bill of goods? And I want to start with prayer. I'm going to kneel and ask God to bless our time if you'll bow your heads with me, please. Father in heaven, I thank you so much for the privilege we have of being here in your presence on the Sabbath. Father, we understand from scripture that you have cleared your schedule for us. Uh, you have invited us during these hours into your presence for a special blessing. And we pray, I pray, Father, for each one of us this evening that we would receive that blessing. And it would be a blessing that lasts far beyond just this evening. I pray that you would guide our minds and our understanding as we turn to your word this evening and we seek to understand your calling for us in this world at this time, how we can come nearer to you and be more united to you in purpose and in thought and in action. And we ask and pray these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Present truth or cunningly devised fables. I want to look at the passage of Scripture in a moment that speaks to present truth. Just make sure you're ready to go there. You have your Bibles with you? Okay, we're going to go there in a minute. Whether you're going to turn the pages or you're going to scroll, you really, there's no excuse to not have a Bible with you anymore, isn't there? I mean, because you have it, you can have it on your phones, you can have them in, in so many different ways, your iPads or whatever. Uh, the theme this weekend is look up. And as soon as I heard the theme, my mind was taken to a, my, my, a statement actually, a, a couple statements. In my early conversion process, I have to tell you this, I was in Ohio, as I mentioned, and the church that I began attending was a... Um, it was a new company, it, and, and its mission was to reach the young people. Now, I was 25 years old at the time, 26 years old, and um, characteristic of churches that are trying to reach the young people, the emphasis is not the message but the music, typically. And so we had the, the hyped-up church service, and I didn't know one thing from another. I just came in, and I was looking. I was looking for for truth, but I had an Adventist background growing up, and my parents had left the Adventist faith and left Christianity altogether when I was about 14 years old. And so uh, one of the things that they had an issue with was Ellen White, and so I was able to inherit that, and when I came back into the church, I shared that same issue. And conveniently for me, the church that I began attending was also down on Ellen White, the Adventist church that I began attending. Um, I'll never forget asking the head elder at that church in a conversation as, I, as I, my views began to change, and I asked him about Ellen White, and I said, what do you do with the writings of Ellen White? How do you view Ellen White? And his first response was, went like this. This is exactly what he said. He looked at me in the eyes, and he said, I believe she was a plagiarist. I believe she was inspired, which to this day I haven't, I've, an inspired plagiarist. That's, you know, but that's what he said. And, and when I had started, that, that just shares with you the mindset of the church that I was attending. And so it was convenient for me. I didn't want to believe in this Ellen White because 
frankly, she told me I wasn't supposed to be doing certain things I did and I liked to do. And so that was cool. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't have to be interested in that. But I had this, I had this interest in prophecy. I had this real gnawing desire to know what was coming ahead. And I forget who introduced me to the book, Early Writings. But because my desire to know about future things overrode my disdain for Ellen White, I began to read this book. If you get nothing else this weekend but the motivation to say, hey, I'm going to pick up early writings and read it, I've accomplished more than I could care to in this weekend. I began reading this book, and I want to tell you something. As much as I didn't want to believe that God spoke through Ellen White, I was compelled to say this is inspired. I mean, I just, I was so gripped with this book, and it was such a blessing to me. And in this book, Early Writings, there's a lot of things in this book, and I'll be sharing from it this weekend. Um, but in this book, true to the title, Early Writings, it begins with her first, Ellen White's first vision given in December 1844, which is significant. I'm going to come back to that. And in the second paragraph of that vision, here's what she writes. While I was praying at the family altar, the Holy Ghost fell upon me, and I seemed to be rising higher and higher, far above the dark world. I turned to look for the Advent people in the world, but could not find them. When a voice said to me, look again and look a little higher. At this, I raised my eyes and saw a straight and narrow path cast up high above the world. On this path, the Advent people were traveling to the city, which was at the farther end of the path. They had a bright light set up behind them at the beginning of the path, which an angel told me was the midnight cry. This light shone all along the path and gave light for their feet so they may not stumble. Now, I'll unpack this further as we go, but that, that midnight cry was a part of the experience, and that experience was an anchor. You know how sometimes the Lord does something in your life? Sometimes. God has done something in every one of your lives or you wouldn't be here. And in, in the Bible, when, when God would do something notable for his people, they would set up some type of memorial. They'd set up memorial stones or something like that, and that was to keep it fresh in their memory that God had done this wonderful thing so that when they came to a point in their life where they were discouraged, they could be reminded of what God had done. And so there was an experience that was to light up the path. So when they came to difficult places on the path, that light from their experience in the past would remind them that God, had, God was the one that led them out onto that path. This light shone all along the path and gave light for their feet so they might not stumble. If they kept their eyes fixed on Jesus, who was just before them, leading them to the city, they were safe. But some soon grew weary and said the city was a great way off and they expected to have entered it before. Hmm. I thought we'd be there by now. 
I thought he'd be here by now. Then Jesus would encourage them by raising his glorious arm, and his arm, from his arm came a light which waved over the Advent band, and they shouted, Hallelujah! Others rashly denied the light behind them and said that it was not God that had led them out so far. The light behind them went out, leaving their feet in perfect darkness, and they stumbled and lost sight of the mark and of Jesus and fell off the path down into the dark and wicked world below. We could go the whole night on that. That experience that shared there. But that experience of her seeing the Advent people and she's looking in the world and she didn't see them in the world, right? And she was about to give up and the angel said, what? Look up. Look higher. And it was some years later that I was reading a series of messages by one of our pioneers named A.T. Jones a series on the three angels' messages he gave before the General Conference assembled in 1893. This was his February 3, well, it, I, I don't know that that was a date, but it was that, and around that time period, and this is a, it was printed February 3, 1893 in the General Conference Daily Bulletin. So probably the night or two before, obviously, to print it. And this is what he said, and it picks up. He's commenting on that, that vision we just read, or that portion, and he's actually commenting on what another brother said about it. He said, that is a splendid picture that Brother Porter read a while ago, that the prophet looked for those who give this message, but looked too low, said the angel, look higher. Thank the Lord. They are above the world. That's where they belong. God's last day people are above the world. Look higher than in the world. And I hope when people are looking for you, they're not looking down here. They're looking up. Present truth or cunningly devised fables. Go with me to 2 Peter chapter 1. And we're going to start in verse 12. 2 Peter in the New Testament, after the book of Hebrews, comes the book of James, then 1 Peter, then 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 12. 2 Peter 1 verse 12. The Bible says here, for this reason... I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in what? Now, the New King James says the present truth. The present truth. Some translations say the truth that is present with you. The NIV says, anybody have that? The truth you now have. The truth you now have. Now, I want to take a moment on this because, in, in fact, uh, uh, recently there was a minister right here, that my family knows fairly well, who was going over this idea of present truth with the church in prayer meeting and trying to make this point that present truth is, is something other than maybe we've thought it to be present truth. I mean, T Peter's talking about present truth, and, and the idea came across that, you know, the present truth Peter was talking about was the cross, and isn't that always the present truth, the cross, and some of this stuff that we have, these, these, these uh, narrow or, or, or what I want to say, these, these kind of constrained ideas that Adventists have of present truth being some certain specific message. Um, 
is not biblical. Now that was the, that was the angle that this professed Seventh-day Adventist was taking. I want us to be clear on what present truth is, okay? And present truth is different in every age. Now, present truth or the truth that is present with you, we've got to compare that with something, don't we? If we want to know present truth, if he's talking about the truth that is present with you, what are we going to compare that with? The truth that isn't present with you, right? And I want you to see it in the book of, well, we're in, first, we're in Second Peter. Go to First Peter. Hold your finger there. Go to First Peter chapter 1, verse 10. 1 Peter 1 and verse 10, the same apostle writing here. 1 Peter 1 and verse 10, it says, Of this salvation, and he's talking about the salvation that comes through Jesus Christ, and he says, Of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ, who was where? In them was indicating when he testified when? beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. So Christ, the Spirit of Christ was in the prophets, and he's telling the prophets, like Isaiah, talks about the suffering Messiah who's going to come and uh, be wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. Well, that wasn't present truth. That was future truth, right? It was something that was to come. And this is what Peter is saying here. The prophets are searching water, what manner of time this, uh, the Spirit was indicating. Verse 12, to them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to who? But to us they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. What Peter's basically saying is there was a time when the, when the Christ, the Messiah, was foretold, he was prophesied about, but it really wasn't for their time. It wasn't for themselves that the prophets wrote that. It was for us, he says, who live now in the fulfillment of that prophecy. And so when we come to 2 Peter, and he's talking about the present truth, that's exactly what he's saying is we're on the receiving end of all of that. So that which was foretold and was past truth at one time now is present truth with us because we live in the time of its fulfillment. Are you following me? Romans 16. Let's look at Paul and see how he does the same thing, basically. Romans chapter 16. Hold your finger in 1 Peter. We're going back there. Or 2 Peter, rather. Romans 16, 25. The apostle says here, Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the what? Mystery kept secret since when? The world began, but now made manifest, and by the prophetic scriptures made known to all the nations, according to the commandment of the everlasting God, for obedient to the faith, to God alone, wise be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. So Paul again is saying, like Peter did, that this reality of Jesus is something that at one time had been foretold and looked forward to, but now we live in the fulfillment, Okay. So when we're in 2 Peter, and he is talking about the present truth, he's talking about truth that at one time would not have been the truth that you now have. It would have been truth that was foretold. Incidentally, if we're going back there, and I lost my place, hold on a minute, 2 Peter chapter 1, 
again verse 12 for this reason I won't be negligent to remind you of these things notice to remind you always of these things though you know and are established in the present truth yes I think it is right as long as I'm in this tent to stir you up by reminding you knowing that shortly I must put off my tent just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me moreover I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. Three times there he talks about reminding, reminding, reminding. Peter wrote this letter about somewhere around 65 AD. How long was that after Jesus Christ had appeared and then ascended to heaven? 30 years. Is it still present truth 30 years later? Now see, that was an easy question. Scripture says it is, so the answer is yes. Yes, it is, Pastor, because Scripture says it's present truth. Why would it be present truth? Because it's still as applicable to them at that time. It's the truth that is present with them at that time. Look, it's present truth as long as it has an effect. As long as, you, you're, you know, with the, the, Peter's talking about this experience. Now, my point is this. Every age has had a present truth. When Noah was out there by the boat, the message of the flood, the coming flood, was present truth. Okay? 120 years going into that preaching, he's warning about a coming flood. Now, that message wasn't, wouldn't be present truth today. It wouldn't be truth at all today because there's not a coming flood anymore. But God forbid that Noah would be out there preaching and talking about, you know relationships and, you know, family time and, um, you know, um, how to commune better with God and say nothing about the coming flood. He'd, he'd kind of be missing something important there. Every generation has had a truth that's present truth. In other words, it's a truth that is especially needful at that time. For Noah, it was the coming flood. In Jeremiah's day, it was the coming Babylonian captivity. He wouldn't have been a faithful prophet if he wouldn't have foretold that which God gave him, a message that specifically applied to his people at that time. In Jesus' day, can you imagine John the Baptist out there preaching about anything under the sun but never saying, hey, you know, by the way, behold the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. In our day, there's a present truth, and that present truth in our day is the truth that we find in Revelation chapter 14 with the three angels' messages. The judgment hour message is present truth today. And somebody may say, well, you know, we've held, we've, I mean, that happened a long time ago. Is it still present today? Let me ask you, is Jesus still coming today? Well, then I guess it'd be present. In fact, it'd be more present today than it's ever been. We talk about the fall of Babylon. Is that present truth? No, no, that's old truth. That's old. Uh, uh, well, let me ask you, is Babylon still fallen? Is the fall getting worse and worse? Yeah, there's two calls out of Babylon if you go to the book of Revelation. Revelation 18 is the final call. In fact, if you look at the three angels' messages in Revelation 14, there is no call out of Babylon. Are you aware of that? It just says Babylon's fallen. You want to get to come out of her, my people? That's once her sins have reached unto heaven in Revelation 18. 
There's a time span. And in those messages, if you look at Revelation 14, you find something interesting. And I want you to go there with me here. Revelation 14. You'll find the three angels' messages of Revelation 14, starting in verse 6. I want to go beyond them, right beyond them. In verse 12, you recognize verse 12, perhaps. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Verse 14 says, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and on the cloud sat one like who? The Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. What's he doing? He's coming to reap the harvest of the earth. What's this a picture of? The coming of Jesus. Where do these messages take place? Right before Jesus comes. And friends, as long as Jesus hasn't come, these messages are for now. And there are those in our church today that want our message to be some insipid, something somebody else is talking about that isn't talking about anything. Like somebody said before, we have mastered the art today of almost saying something. We can talk and talk and talk and make no point. Because we want to be politically correct. And meanwhile, you've got a world that's going unwarned. There is a present truth in every generation. There is a present truth in our day. In the book Early Writings, page 63 in that book, the chapter is called The Messengers. Speaking of those at the end of time, what would the messengers of God look like at the end of time? Early Writings, page 63, says, There are many precious truths contained in the Word of God, but it is present truth that the flock needs now. I have seen the danger of the messengers running off from the important points of present truth to dwell upon subjects that are not calculated to unite the flock and sanctify the soul. Satan will here take every possible advantage to injure the cause. But such subjects as the sanctuary in connection with the 2300 days, the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus are perfectly calculated. Who calculated it, by the way? God Almighty calculated these messages. He knew what, you know, who, hey, if I'm going to try to reach somebody and, and get into their heart and, 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 and stir their heart with truth, how do I know where to start? Who knows how to reach the heart of individuals? The Lord does. And so he gave a message and he says, here's what I want you to do. Go deliver this for me. Such subjects, these are, are perfectly calculated to explain the past Advent movement and show what our present position is to establish the faith of the doubting and to give certainty to the glorious future. These I have frequently seen were the principal subjects on which the messengers should dwell. What does frequently mean? Regularly, often. I have frequently seen this. This has shown me again and again. Don't go off on this subject. Don't go off on this subject. Focus on this. Such subjects as the sanctuary in connection with the 2300 days, the commandments of God, and the faith of Jesus. I'm gonna, we're going to unpack that a little bit here. But I want you to notice several points in this paragraph I just read. We're talking about present truth. It's talking about the danger of messengers running off from these points. 
says that Satan is going to take every possible advantage here. Satan will here take every possible advantage to injure the cause. How? By getting people to run off on different points of doctrine. Okay? Get them all, get all the church members getting into some big debate and argument about some theological, doctrinal, controversial, something or the other, so that we're busy worrying about who needs to be ordained instead of worrying about the message that God's called us to give. And we're going to bicker back and forth while souls are lost left and right for lack of warning. Now, don't misunderstand me. And some of these issues going on, we need to have a voice. And our voice should be with the body that the Lord has established. My point is that the devil is constantly seeking to get us off track from giving the message for this time, okay? It says that these subjects are perfectly calculated to explain the past Advent movement, to show our present position. There's nothing worse in life than having no idea where you're headed, what you're doing, what am I doing here, what's my purpose in life? You want to know your purpose in life? says this truth that we're to these subjects are going to help you to understand that, what your present position is as an individual, as a Christian, as a Seventh-day Adventist, as a church. To establish the faith of the doubting comes through this. Gives confidence in our system of faith. And then it says it gives certainty to the glorious future versus the inglorious future. The glorious future is talking about my salvation. And the point is that these understanding these messages will help me, will help you to have more confidence in your salvation. Contrary to what is probably most generally said today. Oh, when we talk about that prophecy stuff and those three angels' messages, that just robs people of their assurance. It's not what it says here. Does it? It says it gives assurance. Give certainty of the glorious future. And they're perfectly calculated to do so. So what in the world are we talking about here? Now, I know when I first read that, I thought to myself, well, the sanctuary in connection with the 2300 days, the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus, I mean, how many times do you work the math and come out with 1844, right? I mean, what you, that's like the sum of your the sanctuary in connection with the 2300 days, the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus, the principal subjects, like we're going to go over this, over this, over this, again and again and again and again. But think it through with me. Now, it, what's, what's fascinating with me, to me here in this passage is, it doesn't say the sanctuary, does it? It says the sanctuary in connection with the 2300. What's the difference? What's the difference? What happens when you connect the sanctuary with the 2300? Well, first of all, you're not talking about... I have to say certain things at risk of being misunderstood here, so I hope you, you stay with me, but we're not talking about counting the tent stakes and getting all the dimensions on the structure. I've heard a lot of things on the sanctuary. I'm not saying they're not helpful studies, but I would say that along with what Ellen White said in that quote, hey, there are many great things in the Word of God to study, but they're not present truth. And when you connect to the sanctuary in connection with the 2300 days, when you connect those two things, 
First of all, the 2300 days puts it far past any earthly sanctuary. So you're moving it to the heavenly sanctuary. And you're talking in the 2300 day prophecy. And I'm assuming that you know something about this. If you don't, then you're going to be a little bit lost here. But if you know something about the 2300 day prophecy in Daniel 8, and we're going to look at a bit of it here in a minute, then you know that it talks about the sanctuary being cleansed, not just the structure itself. And so it's talking about an event that takes place in the sanctuary. And when you connect it with the 2300, it's not the earthly, it's the heavenly. And when you put it all together, what you're looking at is something that's pointing us to the work that Jesus is doing right now since he ascended to heaven and further on since the judgment began in 1844. And I want to unpack a little bit of that here, but the, the, the point I want to make at this time, this evening, is that the sanctuary in connection with the 2300 days is pointing to the time when that cleansing of the sanctuary event begins. And I'll give you a clue on how to find it. The other part of that, the sanctuary in connection with the 2300 days, the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Can you, find, can you think of a place in Scripture, another place in Scripture, that brings those two terms together, the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus? You should be able to because we just read it. Where is it? Revelation 14.12, which is the final part of what we call the three angels' messages. Let's see, the first part, that the 2300 days, the sanctuary connection with the 2300 days, well, you've got the cleansing of the sanctuary at the end of the 2300 days. What else do we call that? We call it the judgment. And it begins at a certain time. We call it the judgment hour. Where does the Bible talk about the judgment hour? Ah, the first angels' message. And what that statement is basically saying when Ellen White says the present truth is the sanctuary in connection with the 2300 days, it's a judgment hour, the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus, what she's saying is the three angels' messages of Revelation 14, 6 through 12, is present truth and all that they entail. And we need to understand the significance of that for you and me. For too many Adventists today, for too many Adventists today, they don't even know what it means. We don't even study the books of Daniel and Revelation. We want to study Ephesians and get into a real deep study in Ephesians, what the in Christ means. And we've lost prophecy. We're a movement of prophecy. God's called you and me to give a message of prophecy, and we don't even know it. Or the significance of it. We've got to understand this is the principal subject on which the messengers are going to dwell. I want you to go to Daniel 12 with me. I'm going to look at a little history on this. Daniel 12. Something significant happens at the end of the book of Daniel. Did you know that we're told by Ellen White that if we were to study the books of Revelation and Daniel, Daniel and Revelation, that we would have an entire, if we were to understand them, we would have an entirely new religious experience. Let me read it to you. Testimonies to Ministers, page 114. When the books of Daniel and Revelation are better understood, believers will have an entirely different religious experience. 
They will be given such glimpses of the open gates of heaven that heart and mind will be impressed with the character that all must develop in order to realize the blessedness which is to be the reward of the pure in heart. The characters they must develop, that's something else that we'll need to look at. Daniel chapter 12, verse 4, notice what it says here. It says, but you, Daniel, shut up the words and what? Seal the book until when? The time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Then I, Daniel, looked there, and there stood two others, one on this river bank and the other on that river bank. And one said to the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, How long shall the fulfillment of these wonders be? Then I heard the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, when he held up his what? His right hand and his left hand to where? Heaven. And swore by him who lives forever that it shall be for how long? A time, times, and half a time. And when the power of the holy people has been completely shattered, all these things should be finished. Although I heard, I did not understand. And I said, my Lord, when shall be the end of these things? Or what shall be the end of these things? And he said, go your way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed till when? The time of the end. Now, if you have done any study in prophecy, you understand that this period appears seven times in the books of Daniel and Revelation as either time, times, and half a time, 1260 days, or 42 months. And it all refers to the same time period because the Lord didn't want us to miss it. Seven times worded three different ways to get us to the same time period, the period of papal supremacy that went from 538 to 1798. All of those periods end in 1798. And according to the Bible, 1798 began what the Bible calls the time of the end. The Bible said the book of Daniel. Now, this is so important for you to understand. Number one, when Jesus told his disciples about prophecy, he said, I tell you things before they come to pass so that when they do come to pass, you'll know that I am he. And I like to tell people, I like to tell skeptics, listen, God doesn't expect you to believe in him blindly. He's given evidence. He's given lots of evidence. And one of those evidences, one of the clearest evidences is prophecy. When we see fulfilled prophecy, it's evidence to us that God was in this thing. And here the Bible says that the book of Daniel, and if we did a little more studying tonight, we'd know that it's a specific part of Daniel, especially having to do with that prophecy of 2300 days, would be sealed up until the time of the end. Well, that's 1798. Well, what happened in 1798? Ah, now here's what's fascinating. In 1798 something began called, that we call, the Great Second Advent Movement. And it was not limited. Now, here's what we hear. And I had this, some, I, somebody was bringing this up just recently. I was listening to them talk about, you know, William Miller. How, how many of you have heard of William Miller? Of course, because William Miller was the guy who did all this preaching. And this is what we hear. Well, in 1844, this thing happened right before 1844. You know, there's a group of believers, and they were led by this one guy. And this one guy had this idea that went south. And so they said, oh, well, no, that's not what really happened. Uh, this is what really happened, and a whole movement grew out of it. You need to understand something. It was far more than one guy. In 1798, according to Scripture, that book of Daniel that was sealed would be opened. You can read about it in Revelation 10, and it uses the same imagery here, only there you see an angel standing with one hand up to heaven because the other one had a book open in his hand. 
The open book was the book of Daniel. Now out of the book of Daniel, he's proclaiming. And he says, time, there shall be no more delay. The time has come for the book to be opened. Now listen to what happened historically. Incidentally, before there was an Adventist church, but during this great second Advent movement, this is taken from a paper called The Midnight Cry of June 15, 1842. Now, the, incidentally, how many of you heard the term midnight cry? You know where that comes from in Scripture? It's the parable of the bridegroom. Behold, then there came, went out a call at midnight. Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. And so as they heard the bridegroom was coming, it was called the midnight cry, and that's where that language comes from. In this paper, 1842, it says this, and they're just commenting, it is truly interesting to find the various independent writers who since 1798 have seen what was entirely unperceived before, that the 70 weeks was a key to the 2300 days. Now, you have to understand, if you've read through the book of Daniel, in Daniel chapter 9, there's a prophecy, it's the 70 week prophecy. And that 70-week prophecy begins with the command to restore and build Jerusalem. And that command was by King Artaxerxes in the year 457 B.C. Now, that was understood by Christians across the board. But in Daniel 8, there's this prophecy of the 2300 days. And there was no 2300 days from when? Where do you start it? And nobody, but nobody got that the two chapters went together. Of all these scholars that studied it until 1798, and boom, something clicked. Now, why would that be? With all these smart people studying the Bible and not getting it, and suddenly after 1798, it clicks. Oh, yeah, the Bible said the prophecies would be sealed, the book would be sealed until the time of the end of 1798. And so these writers are simply commenting that it's amazing how many people after 1798, again in their words, have seen what was entirely unperceived before that the 70 weeks was the key to the 2300 days. Is it not a wonderful coincidence that so many writers without any knowledge of one another... Now keep something in mind, guys. 1798, there's no Facebook... There's no Twitter. There's no cell phone. There's no telegraph. There's no way to communicate this except for going on a boat across the ocean and on a horse somewhere to tell somebody about it. How come everybody begins to come up with the same understanding of prophecy all across the globe? And you say, no, 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 wait a minute. I know my history. It was just William Miller in New England. Listen to this. From Jan Loughborough's book, The Great Second Advent Movement, page 86. He says, we herewith present a list of 20 different parties who discovered the truth concerning the close of the 2300 days, not by communication with each other, which I just explained couldn't have really happened too easily, but as a result of diligent searching of the scriptures led by the influence of the Spirit of God. Heading the list, we place William Miller of the state of New York. Then follow A.J. Krupp of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, David McGregor of Falmouth, Maine, Edward Irving of England, Archibald Mason of Scotland, W.E. Davis of South Carolina, Joseph Wolfe, who labored in various parts of Asia, Alexander Campbell in his debate with Robert Dale Owen in 1829, Captain A. Landers of Liverpool, England, 
Leonard Heinrich Kelber of Stuttgart, Germany, Lacunza of Spain, Hans Peter of The Hague, Holland, Dr. Capados of Amsterdam, Holland, Rao of Bavaria, priests of Tartary in 1821, Bible students of Yemen in their book called Syrah, Hankstenberg in another part of Germany, Russians on the Caspian Sea, etc. After 1798, all across the globe, a message began to go under the influence of none other but the Spirit of God. Now, just one of these, just one of these, these priests of Tartary, J.N. Andrews, in his book, The Three Angels' Messages of Revelation 14, 6 through 12, shares this. He says, we find this doctrine in Tartary, the coming of Jesus in 1844, about 25 years ago from the time he writes it. And the time for the coming of Christ to be in 1844. This fact is obtained from an Irish missionary in Tartary to whom the question was put by a Tartar priest when Christ would come the second time. And the, and the, and the missionary made an answer that he knew nothing at all about it. The Tartar priest expressed great surprise at such an answer from a missionary who had come to teach them the doctrines of the Bible and remarked, that he thought that everybody might know that who had a Bible. The Tartar priest then gave his views, stating that Christ, he thought, would come about A.D. 1844. The missionary wrote home a statement of the facts which were published in the Irish magazine in 1821. The commanders of our vessels and sailors tell us that they touch no port where they find this proclamation has not preceded them. <laughs> it's just amazing. 1798 comes just as the Lord said. You know, what is it? There's a statement Ellen White makes about the Pharaoh in Egypt and in the deliverance of God's people. And it, it goes something like this. Against God's word, because God said that they would, after that time in, in slavery, they would come out with great substance. And, and how does she word it? Against that word, something like this, all Pharaoh's proud host battled in vain. God had said it was going to happen, and when the time came, you know, the rocks cried out, if need be. In this Advent movement, as this message was going across the globe, what do you think the message was? What do you think people were preaching? The hour of his judgment has come. And in places like Sweden, where they began to imprison the adults, and maybe you know this history, the children, the Holy Spirit came upon the children, and the children began preaching the message. And people who witnessed it said that they, you would go in and you'd see this five, six, seven-year-old, and they'd be acting like a five, six, seven-year-old until the time. And people would gather from all over to come and hear about the coming of Christ. And when the people would gather and the time would come, they said the whole demeanor of the child would change and they would get up and then they would preach the message. And beginning with those words, fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come. I don't think I have. I don't have with me. I, I have statements of... Because of, of, we had our people like J.N. Loughborough who went traveling in these countries and met some of these children who were adults now and they had preached the message. And he asked them about it and they said, you know, he said, you preach the message? And the response of one was, well, of course I preached the message. I had to preach. The power came upon me and I was compelled to preach what that power compelled me to preach. 
The rocks cried out, so to speak. The message was a worldwide message. The time had come for that message to go around the world. It wasn't just some crackpot preacher in New England and we're doing a, a cover-up. It was a worldwide message in a miraculous way. That's how this whole thing started, with the unsealing of the prophetic books. Now, I want you to go to Daniel 8, and I want to I gather one more thought here. In Daniel 8, we're going to Daniel 8, verse 11. Now, if you've studied in Daniel 8, you know Daniel 8 outlines the work of the Antichrist power. In fact, the rise of it starts the, with the ram representing the kingdom of Medo-Persia, and then a goat representing the kingdom of Greece. Then you come to a little horn that represents the empire of Rome. And then the little horn grows up in verse 10 to the host of heaven, which shows the transition from imperial Rome to religious Rome as it exalts itself up against the Lord. And then the Bible begins to tell some of what happened with religious Rome. And I want you to notice especially verse 11. Speaking of religious Rome, it says, He even exalted himself as high as the prince of the host, and by him the daily sacrifices were taken away, and the place of his, that is the prince's sanctuary, was cast down. Because of transgression, an army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices, and he cast truth down to the ground, and he did all this and prospered. Now, notice verse 12 again. He cast what to the ground? truth to the ground. So there's a few things it mentions. He takes away the daily sacrifices. Now, if you're reading along in your Bible there, that word sacrifices is a supplied word. And what the Bible is speaking of here, the word in the Hebrew is tamid, and it's a word for daily. It means continual, and it is used numerous times in the Old Testament scriptures to refer to the continual intercessory work that went on in the sanctuary. I understand it this way. The Bible's simply saying that this, uh, the Church of Rome is going to exalt itself against Jesus Christ, the Prince of Princes, and somehow interpose itself between him and his priestly ministry. Now, let's see. What is Jesus' priestly? What do you think of when you think of Jesus' ministry? Intercession. And what kind of words go along with that? When you're looking for an intercessor, you're looking for what? A priest to do what? Forgiveness. forgiveness is one thing that comes right to my mind. You know, people brought their sacrifice to the sanctuary for forgiveness, right? Did the Church of Rome do anything with forgiveness? Where they kind of put themselves in a place and said, oh, by the way, don't go to him for forgiveness. Go to the priest for forgiveness, okay? Uh, the reality is we could go through history and we'd see not just forgiveness, but incense and altars and, and all of those things were put in an earthly system instead of directing the attention to where should it have gone. The, 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 Jesus was entering into a heavenly priesthood with the blood of his own sacrifice, not earthly incense and transubstantiation, all of these things. So you have this system of error that's coming in Right, that the ministry of Jesus in the sanctuary in heaven is obscured. It's blocked from the view of the worshipers. And then in its place, it says that the truth is cast down to the ground. And I want you to refer to verse 25, and it says in verse 25, through his cunning, he shall cause what? Deceit to do what? 
prosper under his rule. What is deceit? What's another word for that? A lie, right? How do you cause a lie to prosper? How does a lie prosper? Believe it what? Believe it's a lie? It's got to believe it's the truth, right? And so notice truth is cast down to the ground and in the place of truth is put lies that are passed off as truth. Now how did this happen through the church of Rome in the dark ages? Hmm. Were there any teachings that came out of the dark ages as truth that really weren't truth at all? But maybe they were a blend of Christianity and paganism and pagan thought and human philosophy. Teachings about death, teachings about the soul, teachings about hell, teachings about the Sabbath, teachings about the law of God, yes or no? The Bible's just pointing to the fact in prophecy, pointing ahead from the time that this vision was given Daniel, that there would come a time where this anti-Christian power would come and block the picture of what Jesus was really doing for his people and take the truth of God and cast that truth down to the ground and obscure that truth by putting a bunch of error in its place and make people, making people think that all that error was really truth. That's, it's really not hard for us to, uh, to uh, envision that, is it? Especially if you've tried to share with somebody who's believed some of those lies. Now, I want you to notice in that context, verse 13. It says, Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to that certain one who was speaking, How long will the vision be? Concerning the daily sacrifices and the transgression of desolation, the giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot. And he said to me, for 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. Now, I want you to get this here. There are two time periods that are brought up there in verse 14. But I want you to get the question. The question is, how long? In essence, how long what? How long's gonna, how long is the ministry of Christ going to be obscured? How long is the truth going to be cast to the ground? How long are these errors going to be taught in the place of truth without anybody doing anything about it? How long will this go on unchecked? And the answer is for 2,300 days. At the end of the 2,300 days, that's a definite time period, 2,300 days. At the end of the 2,300 days, then something is going to begin, an event that the Bible calls the cleansing of the sanctuary. And at that same time, we can expect that all that has gone unchecked will be checked. That all the error that has been taught will now begin to be addressed. That the truth that was covered up would now begin to be proclaimed. That the... Um, ministry of Christ that was kept from the eyes of the people would now be brought into view. Are you with me so far? Amen. Now, when we take that picture, and that, listen, my Bible reads like your Bible. I didn't write it. Adventists didn't write the book. We're just reading the book. And the book is telling us that after this apostasy, there's going to come this, we could call it a restoration movement at the end of the 2300 days. Yes or no? 
And it's not hard math, guys. It's not hard math. I mean, if you go into the 70 weeks and then you got to add up the seven weeks plus 62 weeks onto Messiah the Prince and all that, yeah, you can get into all the conversion and, and the confusion. But the reality is this. You've got a starting date in the 70 weeks, a decree to restore and build Jerusalem 457 B.C., count 2,300 years. And somebody may say, oh, well, a day for a year, but... You know, we go day for year, and some people, they don't necessarily, you know, i got to explain to people, and they always ask me, how do I know it's a day for a year? Listen, how many of you heard of the seven years of tribulation? How many of you heard of that? I want to see your hand. That is prominent in Christianity, in evangelical Christianity. I mean, almost all evangelical Christianity believes that. You know where they get it from? Daniel 9. You know what, where, where, where that seven years is found, according to them in Daniel 9? In the last week or seven days of the prophecy. So they're already on board with day for year. You don't got to go any big explanation on day for year. They're already on it. Or it'd be the seven days of tribulation, not the seven years of tribulation. Okay? You do the math. Furthermore, the question is, how long is all this going to take? Well, if you look at the vision in Daniel 8, the goat, the ram, the goat, the, 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 the little horn, I mean, the ram itself, which is Medo-Persia, couldn't take place, couldn't be covered in 2300 literal days. You have the 2300, 457. Oh, incidentally, if you do it with a calculator, you'll mess up like other people have because when you're dealing with integers, there's a zero. When you're dealing with years, there's not. There's no such thing as a year zero. You go from 2 BC to 1 BC to 0? No. To 1 BC to 1 AD. Do it on a calculator. It's okay, I'll do this 2300 minus 457. It's not going to come out right. Come out 1843, which is where we had some issues in our history. It's 1844. Now here's the question. Okay, we do the math, 1844, and what did the Bible say was going to happen at the end of the 2300 days? Oh, God's truth was going to be restored. The ministry of Christ that has been hidden was going to be proclaimed. Let me ask you a very simple, straightforward question. Then I'll ask anybody, show me one place in this world where that happened in 1844. And the only place you're going to come to is a Seventh-day Adventist movement. That's it. There is nothing else that comes close to answering to that. In other words, we're here as a movement of prophecy. We're here in answer to the Lord Jesus saying, I can only take it so long, and at the end of that, my truth is going to be proclaimed. And here we are in 2013 with more than half of the Adventist church probably saying, well, I don't know if we ought to be saying that stuff anymore. I don't know if it's present truth. I don't know if it's offensive to people. It's not your job or my job to determine what message we're giving. We've been told what message to give. It's our job to give it. Used to be that we would call, we, we talked about the message in Adventism, the message. I did, I did it myself. Adventism, now it's Adventism. What's the difference between Adventism when I say Adventism, what is that? who does that sound like it's for? Adventism is for Adventists, right? Who's a message for? Well, a message sounds a lot broader, right? It used to be a message. 
That's what we were about. We had a message. We, we envisioned that we were living in a special time in Earth's history where a message needed to come and the truth about God, the truth about His Word, the truth about the ministry of Jesus in behalf of His people had to be proclaimed. And God raised up a people to do it. And all of that was in preparation for His coming. And His coming was and is contingent on that message being given. And now one of the worst things that's happened is we as Seventh-day Adventists will sit around and say, oh, I don't know what happened. I remember I never thought I was going to get into college. I never thought I would graduate college. I never thought I'd have kids. I never thought I'd have grandkids. And the implication that we have is, I don't know what's taking him so long. I guess we're just going to wait and hope he comes. That's the problem. We weren't supposed to wait. We were supposed to work and know he was going to come. The message was ours to give. And generation and generation and generation after generation has passed. And too many have forgotten that God gave a message. And how many of you have heard, there's a, there's this, this has been going around now for, for some time, about how we ought to just really focus on the unchurched. You heard that before? Focus on the unchurched. We don't want to be sheep stealers. Let me ask you who Jesus said to give the message to. Now, if you go back and read Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he says, beginning in Jerusalem and then Judea and then Samaria. You know, all those people were believers in God. All of them were. You tell, look at the woman at the well, our father Jacob, right? I mean, they had differences, but they, they were going to the church people. Listen, the Lord has never said go to the church versus go to the unchurched. He's, God doesn't differentiate people between church and unchurched. He differentiates them between saved and lost. And here's something that fascinates me, and I've shared this, and this one really, I mentioned, we just finished an evangelistic series. And the evangelicals, oh, this gets their attention right away. Because see, in the whole evangelical viewpoint, you understand that what they're waiting for is the secret rapture. You're aware of that. That their whole understanding is that very soon, very soon, there's going to be a secret rapture that is going to come and steal away all the believers to heaven. And at that time begins the seven years of tribulation. Now, if you're a believer, you don't need to worry about tribulation. Don't need to worry about the Antichrist. Don't worry, we need to worry about prophecy and all that stuff. It's not for you. It's not for you because you're not going to be here. You're going to be raptured. Now, that's the mindset. And then during the, what, what's going to happen is once you're all raptured as believers, then the Antichrist is going to come in and he's going to deceive the people. You've got the Jews and they're going to build their temple. And then the Antichrist is going to come in and try to deceive the Jews and he's going to deceive the other people. Are you aware of some of this teaching? Now, here's the million dollar question. If all the believers went to heaven, who's left to deceive? Aren't the ones who don't believe already deceived? Yes. Yes, they are. Huh. And I share that in, in the prophecy meetings. Who's the Antichrist going to come? They never thought of it. 
Listen, friends, the devil's goal in our day is not to come and deceive the deceived. What does Jesus say in his letter to the church in Revelation chapter 3, verse 11? Let no man take your crown. What is that talking about? It's a crown of life. The devil's not trying to trick, deceive people. He's trying to deceive the saved out of their salvation. And God, knowing that, has raised up a movement of people to give a message to prepare the world for the coming of Christ and to help those who are saved to retain their salvation as they continue to follow the light that God has given. And that commission is the commission that you have. Does a person have to be a Seventh-day Adventist to be saved? To receive salvation? No, but listen to me carefully. If you're a Baptist, a Methodist, a Catholic, an atheist, or you name it, you better listen to the message of the Seventh-day Adventists or you will lose your salvation when the deception comes at the end of time. If you don't believe that tonight and you're a Seventh-day Adventist, you're in the wrong place. When you have failed to realize that you are holding a life and death message, if you don't realize, if you don't believe that, you can never give it. You can never give the message. You can never give it the way God intended you to give it. We have got to recapture the understanding that God is calling us higher. The Lord Jesus longs to have those that are surrounding us on every side to be saved in his kingdom. And he's entrusted us with a message to give to them. What are we doing with it? Do we really realize the importance of it? Testimonies, volume 9, page 19 says, In a special sense, Seventh-day Adventists have been set in this world as watchmen and light bearers. To them has been entrusted the last warning for a perishing world. On them is shining wonderful light from the Word of God. They have been given a work of the most solemn import, the proclamation of the first, second, and third angel's messages. There is no other work of so great importance they are to allow nothing else to absorb their attention. Again, God has called his church in this day, as he called ancient Israel, to stand as a light in the earth by the mighty cleaver of truth, the messages of the first, second, and third angels. He has separated them from the churches and from the world. Notice he's separating from both. He's calling people out into his truth, to bring them into a sacred nearness to himself. He has made them the depositaries of his law and has committed to them the great truths of prophecy for this time. Like the holy oracles committed to ancient Israel, these are a sacred trust to be communicated to the world. That's Testimonies 5, 455, and 6. Again, Evangelism, page 230 says, We are as a people in danger of giving the third angel's message in such an indefinite manner that it does not impress the people. Our message is a life and death message. And we must let this message appear as it is, the great power of God. Then the Lord will make it effectual. We are to present it in all its telling force. 
Again, Early Writings, page 256, these messages were represented to me as an anchor to the people of God. Those who understand and receive them will be kept from being swept away by the many delusions of Satan. Is, does this sound important? The last one I'm going to share with you. From Manuscript Releases, volume 19. Ellen White is commenting on the messages, the three angels' messages given through the Revelator. The light that Christ revealed to his servant, the prophet, is for us. In his revelation are given the three angels' messages and a description of the angel that was to come down from heaven with great power, lightening the earth with his glory. That's Revelation 18, angel, who says, come out of her, my people. The loud cry angel, we call him. In it, the revelation, are warnings against the wickedness that would exist in these last days and against the mark of the beast. Now listen carefully. We are not only to read and understand this message, but to proclaim it with no uncertain sound to the world. By presenting these things revealed to John, we shall be able to stir the people. Do what? Stir the people. Listen. The su usual subjects on which the ministers of nearly all other denominations dwell will not move them. The usual subjects on which the ministers of nearly all other denominations dwell will not move the people. What, what would that be? What, what would be those usual subjects? What do you think? God's grace, love, forgiveness. Are those important things? I'm not diminishing the importance, but listen, friends. You don't see a need of the grace of God when you don't realize that you're a violator of the law of God. Our message brings conviction that's lacking in the world today. And what are we doing as Seventh-day Adventists but preaching what the ministers of nearly every other denomination are preaching and wondering why we're not seeing the revival among our people. Basically, we just said that we don't think the Lord's message is good enough. And here's the thing that gets me. We, we talk about our message and we say, oh, we Adventists, we're so bigoted thinking that we've got this special message. Here's what we do. We, we take God's message, we make it our message, and then we ridicule ourselves for it. So we don't feel bad for ridiculing God. Well, we haven't, we've been too uptight and we've been too exclusive. No, no, we haven't. God has. It's his message. And God forbid we'd find fault with it. We make it our message and we ridicule it and then we preach something else that, he's told us not, that, that he hasn't told us to preach or not in the way he's told us to preach it. It says that these are the messages. And friends, Revelation 14, you know, I finished in our evangelistic series, and I, I asked the people, I mean, look, they've got Bibles like I've got Bibles. Fine, you don't have to be impressed that the Seventh-day Adventist Church is God's remnant church, but here's what I'd like you to do. You've got a Bible like I do, and in your Bible in Revelation, it says in the last days, and you all agree we're in the last days, and people do, and in the last days, right before Jesus comes, and you can see in Revelation 14, it takes place right before Jesus comes, Son of Man comes in the cloud with a sharp sickle, right? So you see these three messages about the judgment hour and Babylon and the mark of the beast. Go find where else it's being preached. Guess what? It isn't. Now, isn't that peculiar? 
I mean, if in fact the Seventh-day Adventist movement is not God's movement, and we've just come up with this thing, and we put, okay, fine, then where's this true movement that's preaching these messages? You're not here by accident. This is God's movement. And he has called each of you for such a time as this. By presenting these things revealed to John, we shall be able to stir the people. The usual subjects on which the ministers of nearly all other denominations dwell will not move them. We must proclaim our God-given message to them. The world is to be warned by the proclamation of this message. If we blanket it, if we hide our light under a bushel, if we so circumscribe ourselves that we cannot reach the people, we are answerable to God for our failure to warn the world. So what's it going to be? How is it for you? Are you one of those people that there in early writings in that first vision as Ellen White was shown the people of God and was looking and looking and looking and couldn't find them? Are you one of those people that she was told she needed to look up? Look up. They're above the world. They're above the world. They're not, they're not down here in the earth. They're up here fulfilling the last message of mercy to this world to hasten and usher in the coming of Jesus Christ. God forbid we would fail at a time like this. You know, we just, as we finished our evangelistic series, one of, our, one of the pastors that was preaching there, when he preached on the subject of heaven, one of the things he talked about was how, you know, in heaven, you think about when you finally get to heaven, you know, all the people you want to see. And Jesus, obviously, that's paramount. But you think of all the Bible heroes, like, you know, I've always thought, I want to talk to David. Go up to David and say, David, what was it like? And then you're there, the whole armies of Israel, even the you know, Saul, and he, your brothers, and nobody would go. And you went up there, and here comes Goliath, and he's out there, and you're going to go again. And what was that like? Have you ever thought about that? I want to talk to Paul. Paul, how did you keep on, brother, with all that... And the people, when they beat you with rods, they'd stone you and think you're dead. And then you get up and you went back in the city. What was that about? And I think about the ones that I want to talk to. And uh, Tom Hubbard, who's our outreach coordinator also with Emmanuel Institute, he was, he was preaching on it. He made the point, because we think about that, you know, talking with them. But, you know, those, those, those great Bible heroes, you know who they're going to be looking for? Looking for you and me. You'll be going up and you'll be like, Paul, what was it? No, 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 no. He'll say, hold on, hold on, hold on. What was it like to live during the coming of Christ? What was it like to give the last message to this world? What was it like to be a part of that movement that all of us wish we could have been a part of and you were there? To be part of God's remnant people, to give the last warning call, to watch people who hearing for the first time the words of life were able to receive them and be saved. What was it like? Look up. The Advent people are above the world. Amen. Amen. You want to be above the world tonight? You want to be with that special group of people? You want to be going forward with the commission that Jesus Christ has entrusted you with? I sure do. 
Is that your desire this evening? Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven. Father, what a solemn, what a solemn time we live in. What a sacred, what a privileged time we live in. When so often we, our minds are drawn to our own struggles and challenges. Yes, they're there. But how often we overlook the privilege we have that patriarchs, prophets, and apostles would have longed to have. Lord, we're set in a world and we've been handed on a platter this truth. And too often, too often, Father, we're denying that light behind us saying God didn't lead us out this far and we're turning into other paths and giving different messages. And I pray, Father, this evening, I pray that you would raise up again, stir the hearts of your Advent people, raise us up above the world. Let those who are looking for your people in these last days, let them see an elevated people, a people who are carrying a message, a saving message, and are reflecting the glory of God. Father, this is our prayer tonight. And we humbly ask it in the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www dot audioverse dot org